Hello church family, it is Pastor Norman Hurlow here and I am with... Taryn, good morning or afternoon everyone, it's good to be with you today. Hey, we're looking at this week's lesson and it is lesson number six in our quarter, more lessons from the master teacher and I'm excited to get into our discussion today, Taryn, there's mm. a lot that we can learn and glean from this as we look at education. Now, Ironically, we work on a school campus. Yes, so we do. Loving this topic of education. Um, both Taryn and I are at Gateway Seventh-day Adventist Church and so glad to be able to be with you today. Taryn, will you pray for us as we get into it? Yes, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just want to thank you so much for this opportunity to learn from you, the master teacher. Um, Jesus, we just invite you into this conversation. We ask for the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. Then may we learn from you today and may we understand more about how you are the master teacher and how we can um, teach others in our circles as well. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Taryn. I just realized some people might not know Gateways on Avondale School Campus. Yes. Um, so that's where we're recording from. So this week, it invites us into an interesting idea, an interesting notion or premise right at the beginning um, on Sabbath afternoon's introduction. Do you want to share it with us, Taryn? Yeah, I'd love to read just the last two paragraphs of Sabbath afternoon um, because it, yeah, as you said, it invites us into an interesting conversation that continues right throughout the week. So let's look at this premise that it begins with. So from the second last paragraph, it says, um, of course, that's one reason the gospel is universal and Christ's death was for all humanity. Whatever our differences, surely one thing unites us, our general sinfulness. Hence, true Christian education must be about pointing us to the only solution for our rather dismal state. This week, we'll look at our only solution, our master teacher. Norm, do you want to expand on this? Because this premise carries right through the rest of the week. So let's talk about and get an understanding of this so that we can have a foundation to set us up for the rest of the conversation throughout the week. So to be honest, Taryn, I actually wrestled with this whole premise because I'm one of those and, and anyone who's been around, I guess, modern psychology or counseling, counseling theory, motivational theory, will know and understand that often people are motivated or move towards um, a healthier life or a better version of themselves or move towards healing, not when the negative or the deficit in their life or the pain in their life is pointed out, but rather when they're called to or inspired to a better way of living. Um, and so looking at this, um, immediately I was like, man, is that, is that our main focus? Is that our main thing we, we're leveraging? But here's the other thing I understand. And the other thing I, I wrestle with in this tension, none of us will deny that there is hurt and suffering mm -hmm. in this world. None of us will deny that most of the time, that hurt and suffering comes through the hands of other people. Mm. And most of us can't deny that when we look inside our own hearts and in our own lives, there, is, there are things we do that we know just intuitively are, are not right and we shouldn't be doing and we war against and we fight against. And so that's 
and the other reality that in order to grow, there is humility that is needed. In order to grow, there is an appreciation or an understanding that I have more to learn or I have more to embrace in order for me to find healing, find understanding, grow in whatever area. And so I get why it's making this point and why it's inviting us into this idea because all of us as human beings realize and have the sense intuitively almost that we're not where we should or could be. Mm -hmm. And so this is inviting us to go, okay, how do we get there? Education is about filling in some of those gaps, inviting us into to grow as human beings. What is the solution? Because we intuitively sense and know, and as the Bible reveals, there are some parts of us that um, need growth and need mm. healing. Now, the reason why I say it's attention, Taryn, and I'd love for you, as you engaging with your discussion in your Bible studies, um, on Sabbath morning, wherever it is, to have this conversation as well. The Bible begins the story of God and humanity in Genesis chapter 1. Mm. And it ends Genesis, well, throughout Genesis chapter 1, it says, and it was good. Mm. God created us, man and female, in his image. In the image of God, he created them. And he stepped back and said, it is good. Isn't that a much better pronouncement over your life <laughs> than you are sinful. Mm. Yet the story continues. And in Genesis chapter 3, it introduces this aspect, this idea of the fall, where then humanity entered into sin. And so we see that, we sense that, we feel that. But the Bible story ends with this promise, this picture, this mm. beautiful reality that God is again with and in the center of his human creation. Mm. And heaven and earth are made new and restored. And again, there's this declaration and peace, shalom, it is good. Mm. And so the Bible begins and ends in that place. But yep, there is a story in between. And right in the middle of that is Jesus. Mm. And where and how that all fits in. Mm. So I'd love for you guys to discuss <laughs> and engage with this whole premise. Where does it fit? And how are we able to actually communicate a positive picture mm. of who we are as human beings created in the image of God while still embracing this truth and this reality mm. that, yep, we need to grow. There is more. There is healing we need. There is more we can learn, but also there is this sin inside of us mm. that is almost warring with ourselves and with God. What do we do with that? Mm. So regardless of where we lie in the tension of framing it within our sinfulness or framing it within the once pronounced goodness and then will be like pronounced goodness at the end again, that we can all agree that this solution that we are looking towards throughout this whole week is Jesus. Yes. And we're looking at how he interacts within this um, sinful world, um, within the pain and the suffering, through the process of reconciliation and bringing us back to that place of being able to pronounce, look over everything. It is very good. I love that. Cool. Yeah. And so that's what our focus is. Let's dive in. Sunday. So we start in Genesis chapter three on Sunday. There we go. Talk us through. What are we discussing in Sunday, Norm? So yeah, this very reality that 
what God had created was good. Genesis chapter three, Adam mm-hmm. and Eve, the story where they, you know, go and eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Mm-hmm. And then God comes to meet with them as he regularly does. But what are they doing? They're hiding. They're hiding. Mm. They're hiding from God. And there's this conversation, this powerful conversation that ensues. And I'd love for us to read it because I think it's really insightful mm. in helping us, one, understand often our human disposition towards God, our natural disposition or sinful disposition, if you will. But then how do we engage with that? How do we invite people into the story of God mm. or to realize and understand their who they are and where they are without and I know that without being super offensive mm-hmm. because hey you go to the person on the street and you go hey buddy do you know that you're sinful mm. that doesn't always go down well yeah but how did God do it when he was interacting with Adam and Eve so we'll pick up the story and this is Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 when the cool evening breezes were blowing And the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking among the garden. They hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you. So notice what God Mm -hmm. does there. He asks a question. Yeah. Now here's, do you think God knew where they were? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I don't think that's in question here. Yeah. Playing hide and seek with God. Yeah. He knows where you are. So yeah. it's not Jesus. God didn't ask the question mm. because he didn't know. Mm. So why did he ask the question? I think he asked the question in order for them to come to the conclusion for themselves. In order for them to become aware. Yeah. In order for them to realize and see their position. Mm. What it is, but he invited them into that, not by making a statement or making mm. a declaration or pointing out something. Mm. Rather by asking mm. a question. Yeah, and I love that it like Genesis chapter three starts with God asking them questions. And Jesus just continued that all throughout his yep. ministry. We see him asking question after question. So I love that the character of God is uh, consistent throughout scripture. That is so true. So here's what the man replied in verse 10. I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Mm. And this is often, without us even knowing or being aware, often that is our natural sinful disposition towards God. Mm. One of fear and guilt and shame. And here Adam articulates that when God asks him this question. So he becomes aware that actually this is what is playing out. These are the emotions. These are, this is him responding even subconsciously consciously or subconsciously to the idea of God or God's presence Mm. is this one of, Hey, in my sinful nature, it is fearful. I'm afraid and I'm wrecked with guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. But then God asks another question. Mm. He replies, who told you that you were naked? The Lord asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now, again, God knew the answer to that. But he asked a question. But I love what he asked Adam and Eve. And he asked Adam, yeah, he said, who told you you were naked? In other words, both the act in eating the fruit, that came from a lie. 
-hmm. It came from a lie that the serpent told Eve. And she believed a lie about God, his character, who he is. Then Adam believed a lie about who he was and Mm -hmm. his position and standing before God. That's why God says to him, who told you Mm -hmm. you were naked? Who convinced you? Why are you believing this reality about who you are? Where here I am. I'm still pursuing you. I'm still Mm -hmm. coming to be here with you. But your disposition is one of fear, one of hiding away, and one of shame and one of guilt. And that is leading you to run away from me instead of run towards me. So here, humanity believed a lie about God. They believed a lie about reality. Mm. And they believed a lie about themselves. Mm. And ultimately, that is sin. What sin is. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies because he's the one who convinces us to believe these untruths about God, reality, and ourselves. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Um, And I think that it's really interesting because, like, we always talk about how sin separates us from God, and it does. We see that. But it was only after God had come and met with them that then played out the separation. So, like, they had gone and hid themselves Um, But God still came and was walking in the garden and had that conversation. Like, why are you hiding? Who told you that you were naked? All of that. So he was there to actively pursue, continue to pursue relationship with them. And we see that the, so like, what is the importance of Jesus then coming? Is he is coming to continue to actively pursue relationship. He's coming to actively engage in the conversation and to draw us to himself. And that is actually the story all throughout the Old Testament, yeah. through you know God coming to Abraham, God coming to the nation of Israel, God in the tabernacle, mm. and then God coming in Jesus, and then the promise of the future, the new heaven and the new earth, God being mm. with humanity. It is God pursuing. But part of the whole redemptive and atonement and salvation that needed happening is to try And show us the truth about who God is, who we are, and what is true reality. Mm. Because while we as human beings continue to believe the lie, we keep running. I think that moves us on to Monday's one. (laughs) Yes, it does. On the run, Monday. What are we talking about here? Hey, this is a cool story. Well, a sad story, but invites us into a beautiful picture of God as well. Where Jacob deceives, again, Mm. a lie. This idea that sin is connected to lie and deceit. Where Jacob deceives his father, betrays his brother, Mm -hmm. with the help of his mother, in securing the birthright. But now he's on the run. He's running from his brother Esau, who he believes is probably wanting to take his life. Mm. And on the run, he has an encounter. He has an experience. Do you want to tell us about that, Terry? Yeah, so he is on the run and he meets, he he lies down to go to sleep and he has this dream, the infamous dream where he sees a ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the angel is descending. And then he, in fact, wrestles with this man um, who we later find out is Jesus. So. Here's what God says to him. 
I am the Lord, the God of Abraham. And he comes and affirms the promise Mm. that he had given to his grandfather, Abraham, which was the blessing that he had lied about to his father. But here God comes and in an act of pursuing him while he's on the run, affirms and restores him and then says this, know that I am with you. There's that promise again. Mm. That even though because of our sin, because we believe this lie about ourselves, about God and about reality, we are running, we are hiding from God. He still pursues us. His Mm. desire is to be with us. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Mm. And I think this is kind of a broader promise to all of humanity. Mm. Where God says, you know what? Even though you might be hiding and running from me because of the sin, the lie that you believe, um, I'm going to pursue you. Mm. And I'm going to purpose to be with you and I will fulfill that promise. Yeah. And I love how um, further on in verse 16, it said, Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. In his hiding, in his running, in his guilt and shame, that is where he encounters Jesus. And I think that for so often, like God meets us where we're at. In our running, God meets us there um, and we can encounter Jesus and we encounter his grace and his love and his desire for relationship with us in spite of whatever else is going on in our life, in spite of the sin and the guilt and shame that we feel. Jesus meets us there. I think that moves us on to Tuesday very beautifully. Yep. Because Tuesday talks about Rabbi Jesus Mm. who came into this world And it invites us to read the introduction to the book of John, John chapter 1, verse 1 to 14. And in particular, these verses, um, I think it is John 14. And it says, And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Now, I love... John's introduction to his gospel. It's just a beautiful synopsis of everything he's going to tell us about Jesus and why Jesus came. And right in the middle is this beautiful, beautiful reality or picture. And it draws so much language and imagery from some of the stories in Genesis and Exodus. And so I want us to break that down a bit because it communicates the very thing that we're talking about before, that God came to find Adam and Eve, Mm. even though they had sinned and were hiding from him, that God came to find Jacob, even though Jacob had deceived and was on the run and running from the family of the promise, Mm. God still came to where he was and found him. And here, this is what John is wanting us to understand about Jesus and about God and his character. It says the word, now, talking about Jesus, he, the word um, is the Greek word logos, and he says the word became flesh. Before that, right in the beginning of John, it says, and the word, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And 
The world was created through the word and he is the light of the world. So he's inviting us to connect Jesus to the word. And why that is important is because the Greek philosopher Plato, he spoke about the word or the logos as being the eternal, all-existent God, the one above and beyond all other Greek demigods. He said there was the eternal God, which was logos. And some of the Jewish philosophers had taken some of the writings of um, the wisdom writings of Solomon, where Solomon personified the Messiah or personified God with the word wisdom, Sophia. And they had connected Plato's logos with Solomon's wisdom. And so here, John, in this beautiful introduction to Jesus, connects both his Jewish philosophers, his Greek philosophers, and his Jewish everyday audience, inviting everyone to acknowledge and recognize that Jesus is the one eternal and the one co-eternal with Yahweh, with God, by calling him the Word. Because that brings in the Greeks, the Jewish philosophers, and everyone to this understanding that this is Jesus. So that is a, a sidebar, but a beautiful reality. He says, the word became flesh. Now, what does that mean, Taryn? He became human. This God, this word, this talked about concept within the philosophers' conversations became human and became flesh and became someone that they can interact with. And it took it from being this thought about concept to being a real person with thoughts and feelings like them. What does that mean for education? That means that concepts don't just live in the conversation and up there space that is only a concept, but rather they need to be lived out. They need to be practical. They need to be able to be experienced and felt and seen and interacted with. Wow. That is a powerful, powerful thought. And mm. most teachers will tell you that that is when things come alive in the classroom is when it's taken from the conceptual or the ideological or the philosophical and becomes tangible, experienced mm. and evidenced um, and that's exactly what God does mm. here in his education and revealing himself to humanity. Mm. He takes it from this ideal philosophical and becomes one of us. Mm. And the word becomes flesh. We can touch, we can feel, we can see, we can hear. Mm. And then it says, lived among us. Mm. Now, use an interesting Greek word. Can't remember what it is. <laughs> but what does that Greek word mean? It means tabernacle. He built his tent among us. He lived among us. He um, dwelt among us. And that was the whole purpose of the sanctuary back in the Old Testament, was for God to be with his people. Again, it's just reiterating this concept, the prophecy of the angels and the prophecy in the Old Testament being his name will be called Emmanuel. God with us. And it's just showing again and again how Jesus came to live, to dwell among us as people, as human humanity. 
Man, I love that picture of God. He's not a God who stands far back and aloof and just mm. stands in condemnation and judgment and pointing out our sin. No, mm. he actually comes into our existence and lives among us, is with us. And what does John say the disciples see while Jesus is living among them as them? What do they see? It says that they see his glory. What is his glory? Now, it harkens back to, again, you mentioned the tabernacle mm. and the temple, where there was this idea that in the most holy place mm. is the Shekinah glory, this light. Mm. And it's interesting, John introduces him as the light of the world. Mm. This light that... Um, is the glory of God or the presence of God among his people, which depicts his majesty, his holiness, his, um, his goodness, and all these amazing things. But ultimately, it illuminates truth and reality to us because you cannot see in the dark, but it is in the light that we are able to see, make mm -hmm. sense, understand, and live a productive life. And so seeing his glory is seeing the very attributes, the very, mm. all the good and beautiful things of God. And he says, we saw that mm. when Jesus was among us, was with us, was as us mm. in human form. Yeah. And I love how glory goes back to Moses as well, Ask, on, the, on the mountain. And he asked to see the glory of God. And God said, okay, let me put you in this Ca like cavity of the mountain and I'll cover you with my hand and um, my back will pass before you. Um, and in Exodus 34, it says um, that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But I love how it just proclaims the attributes of God. God's glory is his character. Um, and we see that so clearly in the life of Jesus. Yeah. We see his glory. We see the characteristic of God being that of merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiveness, And then it talks about iniquity and sin as well, which I think is interesting because we're talking about that a little bit through this week as well. And it says we've seen his glory, the glory as of the father's only son, full of grace and truth. Mm. And any true education about who we are, who God is, and any true Christian education needs to hold those two mm. things in tension. And while there is the truth about our sinfulness and the state of humanity, there is the grace of God that goes before, that um, surrounds and mm. engulfs all of that. And how do we, in how we teach and who we are and how we live out our, our lives, how do we hold these two in a beautiful tension of, you know what, we are gracious, we kind, we merciful, we loving, but we are truthful and we are honest and we're authentic as well. Um, and Jesus married those two so beautifully mm. so that he could, he was full of grace 
and truth. Mm. We need to move on because there is so much. But Wednesday talks about um, Jesus meeting a Syrophoenician woman. And there's an interesting interaction here. Mm. What do we glean from this story? What do we take away in the whole education space in the way Jesus interacted with her? Do you want to share a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So we see this woman and she was a Gentile. So she had no right to be talking to Jesus. Like Because he's a Jew. He was a Jew. He's a rabbi. He was a teacher, a rabbi. He was in a position of authority. Um, so she had absolutely no right within that culture to be speaking with Jesus. But and yet, yet she does. She does. What and does not she only... Ask? She asks for her daughter. She is there to petition on behalf of her daughter because her daughter was sick. So she was asking for Jesus. She knew, had heard that he was a healer and she believed that he would bridge the divide um, between the Gentiles and the Jews and regardless of her um, heritage, step out and heal her daughter regardless. Okay. How does Jesus respond? Do you have that passage in front of you? Because I'm still looking for it. Yeah, so when she asked Jesus, he says to her, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. So who would the wow. children be in this story? Well, the children would be the Jews because he was a Jew. And okay, that's and throw them to who would the dogs the be dogs. in this story? Therefore, the Samaritans. Oh, mm. that sounds a bit harsh. Was that harsh of Jesus to say? What was he saying by that? Surely he wasn't being rude that goes against the character of Jesus that I know so how and why was he able to say that to her but it was quite direct Mm. and it was quite yeah they were kind of having a you know going back and forth and she then responds back Mm. um she might have just shrunk back at that point she Mm. might have just gone oh he's probably not gonna engage or or heal my daughter Mm. But she continues to persist with Jesus and she says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll engage in this dialogue. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Mm. What is she saying in that? Well, I guess she was referencing her own culture. So the Jews, they would never have dogs around because they thought that they were dirty. And, yeah. and yet the Samaritans would somewhat keep them around and have them as pets and she was referencing the fact that you know yeah the family would sit at the table and eat the food but you know there would be crumbs that would drop off from the bread and the rest of it that the dogs would pick up off the floor and so even though they were eating there would still be a blessing and a benefit for the other animals in the house so no one is excluded yeah no one is too far from the table of grace. Mm. And, but I love how in this she acknowledges him as Lord. Mm. Um, and Jesus responded to that. What did he do? He healed her daughter. He healed her daughter. Yeah. And I look back at this and I go, man, who was this education moment actually for? Yeah. Because... I imagine the disciples looking on, they would have had quite a bit, they would have been thinking quite a bit, and they would have had quite a bit to say about all of this. But then Jesus responds and heals this woman's daughter. And 
in another example shows God's grace, God's mercy, and the extent of God's love for all of humanity, mm. which the disciples might have wondered, hey, but isn't he just for us? Isn't he just with us? Mm. Isn't Jesus for or God for the Jews? Mm. And so here, Jesus invites this conversation with the woman. He has an honest dialogue with her. She has an honest dialogue with him. He doesn't shun her for having an honest dialogue and being open and even pushing back on what he says, but rather, he actually honors that. Mm. But in the process, educates his disciples. Yeah, and I love also that like he doesn't force it on them like so extremely like he starts with this small story of this woman like this one example but then by the time we get to acts we see that this gospel is going to all the world so it was like he was slowly but surely teaching the disciples that hey this is my kingdom this is what my kingdom looks like it is exclusive of all people of the samaritans inclusive or exclusive also oh, inclusive of all people <laughs> definitely inclusive of all people um but also like women as well who definitely had a lesser um position in society back then and so we see, yeah, I love that you point that out. His education comes in bite sizes mm. that they can actually digest. Exactly. Because if he just gave it all to them at once, they would have probably gone, whoa. And some of them did at some points in his ministry. Whoa, this is too much. We, we, we're, we're walking away. But he gave it to them in mm. bite-sized chunks so that they could digest it and eventually mm. embrace everything he was sharing. That's a very good teaching lesson. Then talking about students... Um, the students didn't often always get mm. what Jesus was trying to share. And this is played out in the story of blind Bartimaeus, um, which is on Thursday. Mm. Um, but instead of going into that story, the lesson points out, and I wanted to ask this question, how do our inherited worldviews or our inherited faith constructs impact our ability to see or understand the Bible, what God is doing, or even areas we need to grow in. Because that's something that Jesus kept encountering with his disciples, mm -hmm. where he would be trying to teach them something about his kingdom of God. But because of the faith construct they had in growing up in Judaism, they they just couldn't make sense of it. They, do you think that still impacts us today? I 100% think that that still impacts us today. And it's hard to... Um, remove the culture that we have grown up in um, and to actually just read the Bible and see what it's trying to teach us outside of our, you know, faith construct and worldview that we currently have. Mm. And so then it leverages the story of blind Bartimaeus where, yep, God healed him physically, but ultimately blind Bartimaeus became a follower because he could now see spiritually. Mm. And this tension that sometimes more, what we're needing more of is our spiritual eyes to be opened, mm. our willingness to look and see and learn rather than thinking, oh, we know it already. We mm. have it all together. And here's to me what I think the crux is in this lesson and what it's trying to help us understand. The reason why they point out our sinfulness is so that we arrive at a place of humility Mm. unless you're humble and you're willing to acknowledge that you have more to learn, 
education is going to be uphill battle because you're going to be pushing against it all the time. But if you come to the place that you realize, you know what, I have a need. There's more I can learn. There's more I need to grow in. There's healing that I need to have. That's when you're willing to open your eyes to spiritual things, You to open your eyes to the new things, to open your eyes to the sense that, okay, maybe there's more I can learn about God, about reality, and about myself. Mm. So many good lessons from this week's study. I want to keep going, but I know our time is short. Hebrews yeah. <laughs> invites us, Hebrews chapter 5, invites us into this understanding that, hey, um, we as believers are called to grow and mature spiritually. Mm. And I want to read Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Now, here, Paul is in, or the writer of Hebrews is inviting those that he's writing to, to appreciate and understand that, hey, there's more to learn, more we can understand, more to embrace about who God is in the kingdom of God than some of the things that they keep rehashing, that they keep going over. Mm-hmm. And often, oftentimes we look at this and go, hey, there's more conceptually that we need to learn. There's more um, information that we need to get. But is this what Paul was talking about? I don't think so. I don't think... I think he covers the theological foundations quite well. Because he carries on in chapter 6 and says, So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repeating or repenting from your evil deeds and placing your faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms or, or laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead or eternal judgment. These are all our like fundamental mm-hmm. beliefs and our, our um, doctrines about God. Mm. He's like, you don't need more instruction about that. And so God willing, we'll move forward to further understanding. So what do you think he's talking about? I thought... The meat was mm. deeper understanding about some of those things. But he's kind of saying, no, that's not what you need. He carries on at the end and he kind of gives a metaphor about planting and reaping. But then at the end of chapter 6, he says, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that you hope what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. So what is the mature Christian reality that he's calling us to? Keep on loving others, caring for other believers as you still do. Taking your faith from being a conceptual mm or an ideological or a philosophical thing to becoming flesh Mm. in human form, being among 
and caring and loving for the people, just like Jesus did. Mm. He's saying, I want you to be like the master teacher in your education and take it. Don't just be about information and teaching and doctrine, but be about lived application where people bump into the reality of who they are, who God is, and what reality is in grace and truth. Because you and God through you has been with them, Mm -hmm. has been among them, has been seen and encountered. I love it. Well, I think we're going to leave it there for today. Oh, there's more. There's more I'd love to talk about. And in in discussing this, I want to encourage everyone, Mm -hmm. go and have a read of Ministry of Healing, page 143, Mm -hmm. where... Um, there's a beautiful picture of what this can actually look like, how Jesus ministered, how Jesus taught, and how we can do that today Mm. in a powerful and impacting way. Mm. Taryn, thank you. Thank you, Norm. Um, Great, great lesson Mm. on how we can learn from Jesus. Mm. And there's so much for us to keep learning and keep growing. But in everything we do, may it be in grace and truth. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our master teacher. We thank you that you came and didn't just speak, but lived among us and showed us and invited us to follow you as we educate, grow, and become um, people in your kingdom. So Lord, bless us as we seek to educate others in this And may we constantly keep our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.